Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Dream Team Tapes Season 2, Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. The players selected for the honor of representing the United States in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games are Kobe Bryant. I've been looking forward to this for a while, you know, to be in this position now to be able to you know, represent our country, man. It's special, it's special. LeBron James. We look for the opportunity to rekindle on that flame of being the best in the world. I guess the Redeem team is, is, is right. We the best team in the world. We the best team in the world. We put basketball, American basketball, where it's supposed to be, which is at the top. Welcome to Episode 5 of Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. I'm J.A. Adande, and we're calling this episode Coach K's Ways. It's a look at the strategies and the tactics that Mike Krzyzewski used, not so much in the games, not the X's and O's, but it's about his approach to leading this team and getting the most from this group. It's about identity and community. But first, I have a quick quiz for my co-host, Jack McCallum. Jack can you spell Shashevsky without hitting your keyboard and Googling or any other cheating like that? Can you just spell Shashevsky for me? K-R-Z-Y-Z-E-W-S-K-I. No problem at all, right? And that might be the easiest difficult name for me to spell as well. And it's it speaks to just how prevalent he's been for the last four decades that if you've covered basketball, professional or college, you've written that name so many times that it comes easily. It shouldn't make sense. Uh, the fact that we all know how to correctly pronounce Shashevsky, which looks nothing like the way you say it, really speaks to his imprint and his stamp on the world of basketball. And Jack, now that you've passed your spelling test, I want to know if you can give us a brief rundown of the role of the coach in USA Basketball, because you were there from the first time NBA players came into international basketball and how the role of the coach has changed from Chuck Daly leading the Dream Team in 1992 to when Krzyzewski was called upon to coach this 2018. That's a good question. Mike's name, by the way, always reminded me of the character in the Superman comics, Mr. Mixplixix. Did you ever did you ever read that? <laughs> if you had to get him to spell his name backwards to go back into the uh, third dimension or wherever the hell he was from. But anyway, the, the coaching role, Jay, and I, I think it's going to speak to what happened in 2005 when they finally decided we got to get a program. You know, we got to get like a, a thing with one coach and a, and a multi-year commitment from players because before that it was very catch as catch can. After Chuck Daly in 92, 
They gave the job, as they should have, to Lenny Wilkins, who was a loyal assistant on the 92 team. Lenny had a bunch of guys, as Charles Barkley put it, the knucklehead factor was very high on that team. I'm sure Lenny was just glad to get the hell out of Atlanta with a gold medal. 2000, the coach, a little bit forgotten, we talked about the Olympics, was Rudy Tomjanovich. And I'm going to tell you why he coached this team, Jay, and it's a quick quiz for you. He coached the 1998 World Championship team. I'm going to give you $100 for every starter (laughs) you can name on that team. We don't want to take too much time, but go ahead. Vince Carter. This is the 1998 World Championship team. Jason Kidd. Here you go. Kevin Garnett. Not even close. Here it is. Jimmy Oliver. Wow. Okay. Jason Sasser. Michael, not Hershey, Hawkins. Michael Hawkins, David, not Leon Wood, and Gerard, not Bernard, not Albert, not B.B., King. That was the team that Rudy coached to a bronze medal in the 98 World Championships. They were having labor problems uh, at the time. You know, it was before the lockout. They couldn't get anybody to play. And that's the team they put on the court for the bronze medal. And Rudy coached that team. Believe it or not, it's looked upon as like a really great moment in USA basketball that they managed to win the bronze. So Rudy got the job in 2000. And then the 2002 team, we talked about that a little bit, coached by George Carl, had a sorry sixth-place finish. 2003 was an anomaly. They put this great team together that uh, was a, was the Olympic qualifying team, whose starters were Tracy McGrady, Jason Kidd, Duncan was on that team, Iverson was on that team, Jermaine O'Neal, Ray Allen, and Vince Carter off the bench, and Larry Brown coached that team. And that was largely the reason, Jay, that he coached the 2004 Olympic team. And I will have to admit that covering those games in Puerto Rico in 2003, Myself and a couple others had this idea, hey, let's get a program. Let's have one coach. Let's make it kind of organized. And the guy I said, Larry Brown would be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And then then he had all this criticism for the way they coached in 2004 when they got the bronze in Athens. And that led us to what we talked about last week, the hiring of Jerry Colangelo and his move to talk to hire the guy we're going to talk about today. And what what struck me when we were interviewing Shashevsky and also Jim Beheim, who was redeemed team, redeem team assistant coach, we're going to hear a lot from him in this episode. But when you look at those guys, just seeing them on our screens, is that these guys are institutions, right? Shashevsky's been at Duke. Beheim's been at Syracuse since I started watching basketball in the early 1980s. I don't know if you have memories of those programs before those guys were at the helm. You, I'm sure you do. But to me, they're inseparable Duke basketball and Mike Krzyzewski, Syracuse basketball, and Jim Beheim, And th- there's something reassuring about that. Uh, I tell you what, Jay, here's how scary it is. I remember Jim as a player at Syracuse. I mean, he was a very good player, and Dave Bing was there then. And I think Jim graduated, obviously I should have looked this up, I think in 1966, so we're now in the year 2021. There was about a half a year when Jim was not at Syracuse University. Wow. Went there as a player, got his master's degree there. Yeah, I can imagine he did a hell of a lot of studying to get that. Became the freshman coach, the JV coach, got the varsity job, has never (laughs) been absent from the bench since then. And like you said, you know, look, there's been some criticism of Jim recently, and there's some things that I wish he wouldn't say. But if you're talking about a guy that has shown loyalty to an institution uh, the two guys you would bring up would be Jim Beheim number one, and obviously Mike Krzyzewski, number two. And like I said, there's something reassuring about that type of loyalty and longevity, especially now when it seems like nothing was the same like it was at the start of last year or two years ago or five years ago. And these two guys have been in the same places for 40-plus years. And what was interesting, though, is that Krzyzewski didn't lean into that when he coached USA basketball, when he stepped away from the hallowed halls of Duke. And at that time, as he was coaching his 2008 team, he'd already made 10 trips to the Final Four. He'd won three NCAA championships. So he knew that gave him a little bit of credibility with the NBA players, but maybe not necessarily cachet with them. And again, since this is about identity and community, 
he decided that, if anything, he was going to be more like the guy from the Polish neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago and the guy who played basketball under Bob Knight in the Army Academy at West Point. And it reminded me of a story that Dan Bickley did for the Chicago Sun-Times in December of 1992. I was just starting there, just starting off my career. Bickley was working there. Bickley, of course, was the author as well of Return of the Gold, which is a book about the 2008 Olympic team that really proved useful in our uh, research for this podcast. But at the time, he wrote an article about how Krzyzewski was this guy from Cortez Street, the Polish neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago. His buddies had nicknames like Twams and Moe and Porky. He'd get in fights playing basketball against teams from outside the neighborhood. And in the first meeting that Mike Krzyzewski had with this group that would be the 2008 Olympic team, that's the neighborhood that Krzyzewski went back to. And he starts talking the way that he's used to talking, but it's not the way that they were used to hearing it. I know I probably have too foul a mouth, but uh, they don't expect me to say motherfucker. (laughs) And, you know, when you're talking, just come on, you motherfucker. We got to get this gold medal. And all of a sudden I wasn't this uh, guy from Duke in West Point. You know, (laughs) I was more of the guy from the inner city of Chicago. Yeah. And one of the people that uh, it definitely made an impression on was Jason Kidd the veteran leader of the Redeem team. First meeting, we got to hear Coach K cuss, right? And I and I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, like this is the same guy that's on TV? And like, I, th- I think he set the whole, the tone, the whole mood kind of like relaxed and everybody was, you know, not on edge now. And Coach, again, he, he hit it out of the park when he first cussed and I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy cusses? And they go, oh, he's, He's got a filthy mouth. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. So another unexpected move was that Krzyzewski contradicted the godfather, Jerry Colangelo. And he didn't quite take sides against the family, but still, Colangelo told the team one thing, and then Krzyzewski immediately told them the opposite. He talked to him. He said, and leave your egos at the door. And I, I got up and I said, you know, it's the only time I'm going to probably disagree with Jerry, but don't leave your egos at the door. LeBron, you be LeBron, Kobe. You know, I, all I know is the Gasols are going to be the Gasols. Ginobili will be even better. If you guys aren't you, we're not going to win. We are not going to win. And for most of them, it was the first real test of Coach K. And something I found really interesting, Jay, there was something Bayheim told us, that the fact that Coach K wasn't an NBA coach and didn't have history with most of these guys was a big plus because that was the polar opposite when they picked the first coach who was going to lead NBA stars into the Olympics. The idea was, oh, it can't be a college coach. You know, it's got to be an NBA coach. And here's what Bayheim had to say. By having a college coach, you have no friction. I don't care what pro coach takes it. He said something bad about somebody or somebody or something during the course of his career that somebody one, two, three NBA players are going to say, I don't like that guy. <laughs> so we had none of that. You know, we had no issue. And I think that, and, and not only that, but I remember LeBron coming to me and when I said something about it, he says, Coach, don't worry. I'm, you tell me something, I'm going to listen to you. You've been doing this a long time. And so I think they were really list, would listen to whatever we said. And we were college coaches. We had never beaten them in a tough game or said something about them. So I think that was good. I think that's important. I think that's a, I think that's a benefit. So that doesn't mean that no players had a history with Coach K. So, for example, Chris Paul and Chris Bosh had gone up against him in their days playing at the, in the ACC. Uh, Bosh went to Georgia Tech, and here's his memories of seeing Coach K on the sidelines in those games. I only had one year in the ACC, but, I mean, he, he always had that intense – intenseness, intense nature uh, about himself. So those couple times on, um, you know, playing uh, Duke, I mean, you could hear him. He's right, you know, he's right there. He's yelling at his guys, encouraging them to play harder, play better, and they are. And, man, we're down 20 now. So (laughs) when those things are happening and you're super competitive, you know, you tend not to like that person. But I came into the situation, of course, he's, you know, Coach K and, you know, I kind of came into the situation with an open mind and 
And um, we all had to find ourselves in 06 and 07. But by 2008, I think we all had a pretty good uh, uh, rhythm to what was going on and how important it was for, for everybody, of course. And also, if you played in college as long as a guy like Darren Williams did and you had success going through the NCAA tournament, sooner or later, you're going to run across Coach K during the NCAA tournament. I think Coach K was perfect for us. You know, he was, I feel like, the right person at that, at that time. I feel like he was, even though he was a college guy, all the NBA guys respected him, you know, his body of work and then, you know, his work ethic. And you could just see the passion that he, he had for the country and for representing uh, USA basketball. And so I, th- I thought he was perfect. I mean, he did such a great job of, of, you know, talking to guys, motivating guys. I mean, you didn't really have to motivate us, honestly. Uh, we, were, we were pretty motivated as it was, you know, once we made that commitment. But, you know, he just was – he just did so, such a great job of coaching and motivating and, and bringing us together. And, um, you know, it was really awesome to play for him, even though I hated him up to that point. Why would that be? What what, would you, just, what connection do you – did Duke beat you? Just Duke. Yeah, they beat us uh, – my sophomore year in the NCAA tournament. Got got some really questionable calls. So clearly he was able to get over it. And Kay did have one player that he coached in college on the team, Carlos Boozer. And I was curious how close Coach K had to having another Dukey on the squad, and that was Kobe Bryant. Now, there's some alternate tie lines where Kobe goes to college instead of straight to the NBA from high school. We've always assumed that if he went to college, that would be Duke. Uh, in 2017, someone asked him on Twitter which school he would have chosen, and he replied, Duke. But in 2013, he also did a charity fundraising interview with Jimmy Kimmel in which he said he would have gone to North Carolina. So who knows how it would have gone, which which alternate timeline, of course, we know what ultimately happened. But, uh, Jack, you were around in Philadelphia, and Rasheed Wallace had gone from Philly to Carolina a couple years before. Now, I'm wondering what was the speculation in Philadelphia about what Kobe who went to high school at Lower Marion on the main line, uh, what Kobe was going to do once it was time to to move on from high school. Well, the one thing good about Kobe then that I don't remember and even did some research on it, he never played footsie like a couple other guys with, oh, I'm going to stay in Philly. You know, everybody praised the Philly coaches. John Chaney's a genius. We love that guy. Fran Dunphy, you know, Phil Martelli, all these real Philly guys. And then nobody went to school there. (laughs) (laughs) Rasheed uh, Rasheed Wallace left. Pooh Richardson left. Bo Kimball left. Hank Gathers left. Scoop Jardine, Eddie Griffin. There was a couple guys (laughs) that stayed. Uh, Kyle Lowry, Aaron McKee, uh, Lionel Simmons, actually, who was a really great player at LaSalle. Kobe didn't do that. But as I recall it, Jay, he did do a little bit of footsie. I, I had, he had said at one point that North Carolina stopped recruiting me. Well, what he meant was Dean Smith said to him, Dean wouldn't talk like this, but he ain't coming to college. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's he's going to the NBA, and I think he kept the dance on a little bit longer with uh, with Mike with Shashevsky. But and it's funny, you know, because of all the kids that jumped into college that that didn't go to college, excuse me, Kobe would have been, you know, really perfect college guy. You know what I mean? He was a really smart kid. He would have enjoyed the classes. He could have gone in there and, you know, spoken Italian to some people. But really, <laughs> in in the, you know, from the beginning, his M.O. was... I'm going to go to the NBA. And I I think that was clear to most people. Well, here's what Coach K told us about his recruitment or lack thereof of Kobe. You know, I never thought he would go to college. We recruited him, but no one recruited him to to any deep level because you knew, you know, like I never saw LeBron play in high school. But when I saw Kobe play, he's the best high school player I've ever seen. And when he walked into a gym – he walked in like Jordan at a high school level, like the play stopped, you know, like he not only could play the role during a game, he played the role before and after the game. He looked that good. He believed he was that good. And he was that good. <laughs> and, uh, but I knew he was never going to come. So, of course, when Kobe did make his announcement, here's what he had to say. No, I have decided to skip college and take my talent to the NBA. 
And Jack, I wonder what that Coach K-Kobe relationship would have been like if Kobe had gone to Duke and he would have arrived on campus with that natural teenage rebellion and, and Coach K would have been the authority figure. And it feels like there would have been an inevitable clash, just like Kobe had with Phil Jackson that we detailed in the second episode of, of this series. But instead, they don't collaborate until they get together on Team USA. And maybe they were even peers at that point. Yeah, sort of. I I can't imagine. If he would have gone to college, Kobe would have been a one-year guy. And in talking to us, you know, he he got his lesson about dealing with the pros when he was an assistant on the Dream Team back in 92, when he was all eager, hey, what should I do? What should I do, coach? What should I do, Chuck? Tell me what to do. You know, him and P.J. Carlesimo (laughs) are real excited. And Chuck looks at them and goes, learn to ignore, meaning don't look at everything. You know, Barkley's going to screw around and throw the ball to wall, or he's not going to, you know, run hard in every drill. You know, take, you know, just don't have to notice everything like you do at Duke. And Krzyzewski even admitted that even after that experience, when he go, went back to his team, it changed them a little bit. But you can't be the same guy coaching college that you are in the pros. And one of the great things we found out, Jay, was how good Coach K was at dealing with pros. You know, nobody had one bad thing to say, and these were the biggest stars in the game on that Redeem team. Absolutely. And uh, Jim Beheim talked about that with us, about the difference in Coach K, the college coach, and Coach K coaching the Redeem team. The key with Mike is that he is different in college, what he does in college, and what he did with those guys. I mean, he was like a pro coach. He He's a master psychologist, master at really the mental aspect of coaching, getting the players to contribute, getting them to show that they're part of it, that they got worth saying in what we're doing, uh, and, and getting them to accept their roles. And they were good. The NBA players were great. You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. So one thing that had to have helped was that Coach K wasn't acting like the coach of Duke, and he was obsessed and I'd say even refreshed with coaching USA Basketball. And when we talked to him, I was amazed at the details that he remembered from his time with that team, and we'll hear several of them over the course of this podcast series. Also, the emotions that resurfaced. He was getting choked up at times, telling us about some of the moments that he shared with this group. And it's not like he was tired of Duke and that he was going through the motions. I mean, after this 2008 experience, he won two more national championships at Duke, and he sort of got with the times and started recruiting these one-and-done players. So it wasn't like he was finished with Duke. But those championships might even be more impressive than the earlier ones, right? Because he's older and there was a bigger generation gap with the players. And I'm wondering, perhaps this experience helped him connect with the new generation or new generations of players from this this Olympic uh, odyssey that he went on. But I just got the feeling that these Olympic gold medal teams, and remember, he coached in, in 12 and 16 as well. They just meant something more to him. And Jack, did you notice that when he talked to us, he was wearing a USA basketball shirt and not a Duke shirt? Oh, yeah. He probably made a – he had just come from practice, I think. He probably did one of the quick change uh, artists, you know. Okay. But, you know, it wasn't hard, Jay, for him to get into that mode. He goes way back with USA Basketball. He was an assistant to Bob Knight on the infamous 1979 Puerto Rico Pan American game when uh, when Coach Knight put a Puerto Rican policeman in a uh, in a trash can. So he goes way back. And he always wanted his guys to play. You know, Christian Leitner was one of those guys, as much of a pain in the neck as Christian could be, he was one of those guys playing on the junior USA national teams over there, you know, where the toilets wouldn't flush very well and the and the uh, water wasn't always warm. And so he always had this kind of soft spot. And the fact that he goes all the way back to 1979 and still, as you mentioned, He's still coaching gold medal teams in 2016. At the same time, he's keeping up a Duke basketball program that's one that has remained one of the tops in the nation over the last three decades. That is pretty extraordinary. And uh, Jim Beheim talks about Mike Shashesky in that respect. Mike literally worried about this 365 days a year. Literally, when he was getting Duke ready for NCAA tournament game, he was watching tape of. You know, Spain. He did. He really he did that. He bought into this is this is it. I mean, he wouldn't admit to it probably, but this was the most important thing for him, I think, of all the things. I mean, let's see, he won five NCAA championships, but he worried and thought and stressed on this every day. He liked me along because the staff liked me along because I try to get him to ease up a little bit here. Let's take a few minutes off here. Let's get away. Let's go to dinner. Let's calm down. Jack, it's just funny to me, this notion of Jim Beheim as the, the chill guy, right? That's not how we think of Jim Beheim. This guy to be like, Mike, calm down, settle down, relax. That's not the popular impression that we have of Jim Beheim. And one of the things I found out being around him for, for his practices is he kind of lets everything go. You know, they're screwing around. The music is playing loud. And Jim kind of looks up at the booth. They turn off the music. And he strolls into the huddle. And for whatever reason, everybody shuts the hell up. And you can't hear what he's saying. Now, you get him into a game. (laughs) You know, then he kind of turns into that whiny, gesticulating Jim Beheim that we knew. But in this kind of atmosphere... Jim kind of understood that as the other college coach, you know, and Coach K is going to be watching film at four o'clock in the morning. We're going to be hearing about that later in the podcast. Jim thought, nah, I'm not going to be that guy. You know, I'm going to be kind of the, uh, as you said, the chill guy. And he did have that in him. It's funny. I remember at the 95 Final Four, uh, 95 or 96, the one that was in New York, the, the, the last non-Dome Final Four, actually. And in the the off day, they have a media availability at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in this ballroom. Jim Beheim's up there. 
and he was so good and so loose and relaxed. They actually had to cut off his mic so that they could go on. I mean, he could have stayed up there all day. Uh, he was having a great time dealing with the media in this in this ballroom in this New York City hotel room. But uh, you know, on this 2008 staff, the the Redeem Team staff. Keep in mind, it wasn't just the college coaches, so it's not just Shashevsky and Beheim. You had Mike D'Antoni and Nate McMillan, who were the NBA coaches on this staff. And D'Antoni met with us, and he told us how adept Coach K was at managing this team. He was really good at it. He understood exactly how how much to give them. You know, we always kept saying you want to be uh, prepared, but not over over prepared. You know, I think we we did a lot of film work. We watched games up games, but he he really took care of the players. He knew how exhausting it was playing the NBA season, and he had a good feel of the team. And that's what you know. Besides the X's and O's, which he's really good at, and uh, there's a lot of coaches like that. But his his one of his best things that he does is the feeling the pulse of his team and how much he needs to talk to them or give them, give them freedom or, you know, have, like you said, have selective hearing, having selective hearing is huge. And um, he, he, he didn't miss the beat on that. I think one of the overlooked guys in this Jay is, is Nate McMillan. And it kind of speaks to, you know, it's almost an extension of his, his playing career. <laughs> overlooked. He was yes. an all defensive team guy, I think second team, all defense, three years. And he was the one that sort of reinforced the seriousness of purpose of of Krzyzewski. And, you know, you have to play, everybody would laugh and say, oh, defense, you know, there was nothing. You had to D up in this, for the Redeem team in 2008. You were playing against uh, pros who, from Spain, who shot threes. You had to play the whole game. And I think that's what Nate supplied, that kind of intensity and defensive philosophy that Krzyzewski wanted to incorporate. Mike D'Antoni, on the other hand, was sort of the guy that, you know, I I think Chris Bosch told us offhandedly, well, you know, Coach D'Antoni will go, we'll just outscore him, you know. And that, (laughs) that was Mike. And is it a positive or a negative? Would his son's teams, which I was around in the early aughts, would they have won a championship if Mike had a little more Nate McMillan or Mike Shashesky in him? I know what D'Antoni would say. You're full of crap. Uh, you know, you got to be the way you're going to be. But they were a great pairing. I think Mike, for a little bit of the, hey, let's play loose offensively. Let's just be ourselves. And, and Nate would say, hey, we got to lock down once in a while. You know, this isn't 1992. This is 2008 when we got the uh, Gasol brothers and uh, guys shooting NBA three-pointers. So they were a good match. Yeah, and, and, you know, Krzyzewski would turn to them for not just philosophy, but also specific play calls, right? In in a huddle, he was more than willing to to turn over the clipboard and and let those guys diagram plays. And also he'd, he'd get advice from them on not freaking out if the players appeared to be preoccupied with other things during his pregame speech. I relied tremendously on Mike D'Antoni and Nate. Tell me what a pro guy, like even in scouting reports and things like that. A big thing for me was talking to them before a game and what the hell they were doing. I'm used to a team just sitting there and doing, I mean, they're doing all kind of crap. You know, they're, they got, they're putting their feet on tennis balls. They're rolling their bodies. They're stretching <laughs> their whatever. And I, that's happened the first time. And Nate and Mike said, don't worry, they're paying attention. And I said, that makes me nervous. And they said, don't be nervous. In other words, don't try to change their environment in certain things. And you change your way of looking at that environment. Yeah. And I, I benefited greatly from having that pro influence and any side out of bounds play, I let them diagram too, because the NBA has only 6,433 side out of bounds plays. And uh, I I just relied on them a lot. So I, I call all those guys like our co-coaches really, they were, we really worked well together as a, as a group, you know, and also it was better for them to hear more, voices than mine and they they knew how good mike is and nate and you know for me not not to let them do their thing would be dumb i mean mike is 
one of the most brilliant offensive minds. You know, he would always say, though, don't worry, we'll outscore him. I said, no, nah, let's play some defense. <laughs> sounds like That's Mike. Mike. <laughs> let's, let's play. I'd be more comfortable if we just played some, some defense. So Nate was big, obviously, he's one of the great defensive players uh, in the NBA. I said, don't let him influence you. Let's get a good balance. <laughs> You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> and catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Now, one of the things that that Krzyzewski did, which was very smart, was take input not just from the assistants, but also from the players. And a lot of coaches are slow to understand. You're talking about a 2008 Redeem team, as was the case with the 92 uh, Dream Team. You're talking about some of the smartest players ever to play the game. I mean, LeBron James's basketball IQ, I, I don't know. Where do you put it? It's on a level, certainly, with, with Larry Bird's, Oscar Robertson's, you know, Magic's. And Coach K took input from them as well as the assistants. Before we ever had a practice, I met with those my leadership team. It's Kid, Dwayne, Kobe, and LeBron. And I said, "Well, you know, we got a short period. We got to have two practices a day." And they looked at me and said, "You know, Coach, we can't do that." So I don't know if they're punking me or what, whatever. I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "We all have our routines in the morning, Pilates, whatever it is." We have a team meeting, we'll practice. Some of us will want to work after practice. Some of us will want to come at night. Let us have our routines. And you don't have to do any conditioning. We'll be in condition. That's what we do in our routines. So, okay, that's what we did. And I'll tell you what, they did that. We added more court coaches because we found that me or Beheim running a drill was not good. 
And even D'Antoni running a drill was not good. Nate, pretty good. And <laughs> so we had assistants like Wojo, Chris Collins, assistants in the NBA. We had So we had a bevy of guys around. So whenever these guys needed something, they would go to the gym with them. And sometimes even during the competition, pool play, we would not have a practice. We would, we call it a spa day, but it was more of a day for you. And they would, we would go to the gym and they would do all their individual stuff. And I weren't, and you know what, by them doing it, they saw each other and how they prepared. It, it really was a tutorial, really, for all of them. Whatever they show on TV is one thing. What they do in private, they, they have their own stuff. And uh, that was a big thing for me. Yeah, because you're as a college coach, you're a little bit more of a micromanager, you know, in that regard. So we've talked about identity as a theme here. And one thing to keep in mind is that Mike Krzyzewski is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. And from the moment that he first gathered this team for meetings and training camps in Las Vegas, he really tied the national basketball team's preparation for the Olympics into the armed forces. So the team visited military bases. They invited service members and their families to watch practices and scrimmages. He had veterans and high-ranking officers speak to the team. They even had camouflage warm-ups made up for the players and coaches and even Jerry Colangelo when they visited a a military base uh, ahead of one of the tournaments. And uh, Chris Boss spoke to the the military theme that was so pervasive throughout the preparation for the Olympics. We met men and women who served, who got, we met one um, gentleman, he fended off a bomb and the debris got in his eyes, blew up and got in his eyes, was blind. He reenlisted, you know, um, hearing, hearing stories like that and always, I mean, they always like damn near every day we would meet someone talking to two and three star generals at, at the same time as well, them telling you about leadership and what it means to wear that flag on your chest and how important it is. I mean, it, it was intense, man. <laughs> it was intense. And this is before we, we, you know, we didn't even, um, we hadn't even left Vegas yet, you know? So it, it was just, you saw how important it was to represent America, to represent the United States of America and who's watching and, and what it means to a lot of people. And so we wanted to reciprocate that energy and show them, okay, you know, it means a lot to us too. But it started with Coach K, you know, with Coach K and um, uh, uh, Colangelo, you know, those guys, they showed how important it was, you know, by by setting the tone of having the military men and women in Vegas. I mean, as soon as we got there, you know, and, and it was always a part of the process. Sometimes it would be, you know, Coach K telling some story, when he was a basketball player at West Point or something like that. And, you know, it was always ingrained. It was in pretty much ingrained in the, um, in, in the narrative the whole time. And Krzyzewski told us that was all very intentional. We used the military like crazy to help us feel being USA. And the first group that we had talked to our team Bob Brown, one of my former players at West Point, he's a colonel. He just retired as a four-star general. He brought three wounded warriors in to speak to our team about selfless service. One of them was blind, Scotty Smiley, who became the first blind officer in the United States Army, and two other non-commissioned officers who had lost limbs. And all three of them had no excuses, and they wanted to serve again. Two-thirds of those guys were crying, listening to them. And, you know, you don't own something by just hearing and seeing. You own something by feeling. And the military helped us immensely feel. That's why we always did things with the military so that uh, our guys got it. And they, they all, we all became better people from being in there. And really, that's the essence um, upon which that team and then the future teams uh, built on that. That was the the culture and God bless those guys for being able to feel that way. Mike, you, you mentioned you really leaned on that military connection and for, for some people it's, it's a little, it's a touchy subject, right? Mixing sports and military and they wonder about the appropriateness of, of that. 
But I would figure if anyone had the license to do that, it was somebody who, who went to Army. And I'm wondering what you learned at West Point about and, and, and how the West Point culture uh, equated sports and military and, and how, how those two things could be compared and mixed. Yeah, well, a couple of things. One, every cadet is an athlete. That, that's one of the, in other words, there's not a cadet there that doesn't participate in sport at either the company level, intramural club or, or varsity. And that was the Thayer model of education that sport, it, it, you know, upon the fields of friendly strike, all those great quotes, they, they we all believe in it because we, we see that it actually happens. The other thing with sport, it put the guy who might be the number one guy in his class in engineering and whatever, but who could hardly catch a ball, be on the bench. You know, you, it put you in different roles of, and, and so in all these things, by being in, in sport, you learned uh, different roles, but you learned, learned empathy, you know, and you learned how to be a, a member of a squad. You also learned how to be a squad leader. So, you know, how we did that in leadership and training, and we take an oath, every cadet, every West Point graduate is the same in the fact that we've all taken the same oath, and that's to a lifetime of service to our country, whether it's in military or civilian. And so even with the Redeem team, uh, we we took an oath of playing for our country, but those standards, you know, I said, you guys at some other time during that summer, we, I said, uh, you guys are used to signing a contract. And I said, if you believe in this shit, I want you to sign these standards. But Coach K was smart. You know, it wasn't just West Point. It was also Motown. And Coach K used that soulful Marvin Gaye national anthem from the 1983 NBA All-Star Game in Los Angeles. He used that to motivate the players as well as the military stuff, as Carmelo Anthony alludes to here. Coach K did a great job of making us understand what we're playing for. He did a great job of letting us know you're playing for, you have USA on your, on your chest. That means a lot. You know, like even when we, when we changed the national anthem, right, when we, we, we put in, you know, we, we started listening to the Marvin Gaye national anthem. That, that was Coach K's doing. You know, that was his way of like, listen, this is bigger than you guys. This is bigger than us. And when you hear that, that Marvin Gaye, you know, national anthem, it, you get goosebumps. And Coach K would just play it, play it, play it, play it. So we understood you know, what we was up against. And here's Darren Williams again to tell us how it all came together to instill this sense of national pride in the team. It was our way of serving the country. You know, we, we didn't go to war. We didn't go, you know, like, like our military does. We don't go and fight for our country. But that was kind of our way, I feel like, of representing the country, of, of giving back. And I think there was a level of pride because of where USA basketball had, had gotten to, you know, with what happened in 04 and things like that. And so I think that's what made it it's so special was, was, you know, the reason it's called the redeem team, you know, cause we were able to redeem what happened in 04 kind of put USA basketball back on top. So ultimately what coach K was able to do was create a, a shared environment, a community that they could all inhabit in which they had equal rights and input. And ultimately they were all rewarded for that. And he shared with us a conversation he had with Kobe Bryant after the 2012 gold medal game in London, which was Kobe's last with the Olympic team. Yes, it's not to make the details public, so we'll honor that. But it was obvious that those type of exchanges were as valuable a part of this whole experience as anything else was for him. These guys gave you a lot of private moments that they wouldn't give other people. And I, I think that environment, it was a good neighborhood to live in. So that's it for episode five. Remember, we're not even in Beijing yet. So we're going to be hearing a lot more about Coach K's tactics, about his interactions with Kobe and LeBron and Dwayne Wade and everybody else. But remember what's happened now. We have Jerry Colangelo's in charge, the godfather. He has his coach, Mike Krzyzewski. Everybody's in love with everybody else. So in episode six, the team comes together and everything is instantly wonderful, right? Well, not really. 
Remember the episode we called the Greek tragedy when we won the bronze medal in 2004? Well, an incident involving the Greeks, not the ancient ones, but the modern ones, occurs in 2006. And we're going to talk about that in episode six. But here's a little tease of how important a loss was in the 2006 World Championships to the Redeem Team. When we lost in 2006, the Redeem Team really has its origin from what we learned in 206, was that you can't, it's kind of like the U.S. uh, military in Vietnam. You can't just send people over there and think because you're good that you're going to, you have to train together. You have to learn about their game. You know, you, you, you can't be arrogant and unprepared. And remember season one of the Dream Team tapes, which talks about the Dream Team in Barcelona, is still available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So I'm Jack McCallum. Thanks for listening. And I'm J.A. Dande. We'll catch you next episode. The Dream Team Tapes Season 2, Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, Jack McCallum, and J.A. Adande. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcast and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Our editorial director is John Tuttle. Supervising producer, Brian Murphy. Legal producer, Freddie Overstegen. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.